Well, this month is also another month of celebration that we perhaps uh, you may be less familiar with than celebrating. And this month of October is a month that uh, oftentimes churches celebrate the Reformation. Uh, The Reformation was a historical period that on uh, the last Sunday, the 29th, is kind of the more official date on the calendar, that uh, it would be 500 years, 1517 to 2017, that it is marked by uh, an individual uh, who uh, uh, made some uh, dramatic changes because of him confronting, being confronted by Scripture, by the Word of the Lord. Uh, Some of you, um, and I'm not sure because I told you these slides may be out of order, but Martin Luther, and I think we have a a picture of him there. Somebody had their phone handy when he was uh, doing this. Um, But Martin Luther, uh, and just hear me, Martin Luther was one of many. There were many reformers, but Martin Luther gets the most attention because of his uh, dynamic role and and what had happened, but we don't worship Martin Luther. We don't. We don't. He's not our. But God used. You know, when you look at history, you look at Bible history. God uses men. He uses women. He uses individuals. And so, so when I'm referring to things that happen and about uh, Martin Luther, uh, again, I'm I'm only celebrating the work of God that was done through him. So just keep that in mind. And if I make reference over, of course, you know, at this time in this period, in 1517, uh, the Roman Catholic Church was it. I mean, that was it. Uh, So any criticisms or things that I say in in history and how we, uh, as Protestants, you know, we are Protestants, and that word comes from uh, part of that word Protestant is the word protest, that Martin Luther and the Reformers led a protest against things where they believed, and I believe they were right, that the church had deviated from biblical truth, and especially in regard to core essentials regarding uh, salvation and how a man or a woman is made right before God. And so we're going to talk about those things in the coming weeks. And the series that I'm calling this is called Anchored. And I was, I was praying because I went back and forth of thought, maybe I'll just do something on that last Sunday and but I went back and forth, and I just kept coming in my head about this, this word anchor because some of the truths and some of the things that we'll highlight in the next this week and the next three weeks, four weeks, uh, are anchors, what I would call anchors of the Christian faith. It's not the totality. It doesn't mean that these are all there is, but these are essential anchors that my conviction is that if you do not have these anchors of essential truth... You do not have a Christian church. You do not have a church that is biblical. And as I said, there are certainly a lot of things uh, that each one of these weeks that we'll talk about these various anchors uh, of truth that are derived from a particular kind of slogans. That's maybe our modern word from the Reformation. And uh, there's on your bulletin, and I think it'll be on the screen, there's a, uh, just a, a, a paragraph 
that I want us just to read together. And in each one of these, uh, if you can see it on the screen, you'll see that there's five of these. We're only going to take the first four, the one about the glory of God alone. Uh, Some people include that, but it kind of wraps everything together. But we're going to talk about Scripture, grace, faith, and Christ. We're going to talk about these things over the next four weeks. But let's just, again, this is not Scripture, all right? So don't get hung up on this. This is just a way for us to kind of acquaint ourselves with uh, introduction of what we're going to talk about. But uh, let's just read this together. According to the authority of Scripture alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Let's, let's say that together one more time. According to the authority of Scripture alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. That is derived in kind of a, a shorthand of the main, the five themes that are derived from the Reformation. Uh, you may, if you read on this, or maybe if you get um, uh, Table Talk, or R.C. Sproul's publication, or others, sometimes they'll refer to these, or historically they refer to it by the Latin, which is the word sola, S-O-L-A. Because often, if you Google or read something on that, that's the way they'll refer to it. But that's all, in English, that's all these things are. And these four themes are, again, they're just shorthand themes and anchors, if you will, concerning core essential truths that were derived from the Reformation. Now, let me just say something else. When we talk about the Reformation, we're not just talking about... Again, you may not be familiar with all these terms, and so don't worry about it. We're not just talking about churches that are Reformed. Every church that is non-Roman Catholic, okay, has traces their roots to the Reformation, whether it's Wesley and the Methodists, any Protestant church... 2320 Sleepy Hill Road, we trace a beeline back to what was done on October 31st, 1517, when Martin Luther, I had that picture, if you want to go back to that picture there, uh, that it was noted on that date that he nailed what are 95 uh, kind of points or statements on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, on October 31st, 1517. Now, remember Martin Luther, if you're not familiar with Martin Luther, is that he was a Catholic priest, a Catholic monk. He was in a monastery. He taught theology to other uh, up-and-coming priests and theologians. So he was a very uh, intelligent individual. His father wanted him to become a lawyer, but he uh, dedicated his life to, the, to the, the service of the Lord. And it was while he was, again, in teaching and instructing in theology that he was teaching the book of Romans. And as he was teaching... Now, I'm sure he had read, and I, of course he had. He would have not been in a theological position in the church at this time had he not been a student of Scripture but at some point in uh, 1517, 1516 and there, the Holy Spirit, I believe, opened his eyes to some truth that was clearly always there in Scripture. And it had to do with how is a person made right or just in God's eyes. He was committed to doing whatever was necessary. And if there was anybody who labored hard, I mean, 
uh, he again bought, thought that, you know, there must be something I need to do. Uh, I can't, I must suffer. And so there's stories of him walking on stairs on his knees to, and praying the whole way. There's stories of where he would uh, not, uh, in the winter months, he wouldn't uh, have the blanket or coat because, again, he just felt like, I'm not worthy, and there must be something that I must kind of do because I can't. I have to earn. He may not have said it that way, but that was the spirit to earn my place or my righteousness before God. And then one day, as he began to look at the Word, which he had probably done a thousand times, God opened the Word and said that the just shall live by faith, that there's a righteousness apart from the law, And that there's a merit that Jesus has done and finished. And that those who are right with God must have faith in Christ and Christ alone. And that began what we might would call a revival. And really the Reformation is a revival, in my view, of biblical Christianity. That's what the the Reformation is. Does that mean everything was done? No, of course not. But there certainly was a significant event that God used in history. Martin Luther, interestingly, and we'll say more about this in a few weeks on uh, the last Sunday when we talk about the just shall live by faith. Martin Luther's intention was never uh, to break away from the Roman Catholic Church. He was a student. He was a child of the church. He was educated by the church. He he just came to the Word and said, look, we're doing some things that are not biblical, and so by him posting, and again, he wasn't, do, he wasn't um, uh, committing vandalism by nailing this to the door. That, in that public setting, that was the way that people uh, communicated with each other. If there was a notice or, or there was a meeting or something, so it was very common that if you wanted to uh, make something available, no Facebook, no Twitter, no Internet, nothing like that, no print. You know, the printing was obviously still in very early stages. But he nailed this document to the door really as a point to say, let's talk about these things. Let's, let's, let's talk about this because we want, as a church, in his view, we want the church to be back aligned in, in conformity with the Scripture. And that was all his intent was. Well, Not only, I mean, it wasn't just a reformation. It was a revolution that took place of the changes and things that began to take place because of a man willing to put his neck out there. And again, there are many other people that we would call reformers, but I'm not here to give you a history lesson. I'm not here to walk you down memory lane. I'm not here to have a theological discourse, even though hopefully every Sunday it is theological (laughs) to some measure. But... All I want you to do is have some appreciation, understanding for our heritage as as a church, and I'm talking about church at large, but ask ourselves, do these essentials, Scripture, Christ alone, grace, faith, do those still, are they still relevant? Are they still essential? And and when I think about anchors, when I think about an anchor, has anybody ever like been on a uh, maybe you served on a battleship or some large uh, ship where you went on a cruise or something, and you saw the massive anchor. And the anchor is intended to hold during uh, a storm, uh, you know, when the ship is lost, it's, you know, it needs to stay in one place. And so these anchors 
of the church, the anchors not of Grace Church, but anchors of Christianity, are intended to hold us in place as essentials that if we deviate from these four things, and again, there's certainly other truths. These are not the total truths. But if we are off on these things, it doesn't matter what we're right about. Do you hear what I'm saying? It doesn't matter what we're right about. If we're wrong on how God has spoken to us through the Scripture, if we're wrong that really it isn't just Jesus, but it's really something I do, something I add in, it really Jesus is not sufficient. If we're wrong about the work of Christ, if we're wrong about the grace of God, no, it's really something I've got to work and earn. That was Luther's mentality, and unfortunately, the church at that time, the Roman Catholic Church at that time, they had certainly perpetuated that concept that it was something you must do, something you must earn. And certainly, if it's not by faith in what Jesus has done, but it's more in trusting in my works, and that's why Martin Luther was almost kind of, there were times he was almost, I don't want to say schizophrenic in a clinical sense, but he was just obsessed with this sense that God is angry and displeased with him, and there is nothing he can do to be made right with God. And that tormented him. That tormented him. But thanks be to God that the Spirit opened his eyes and the Word of the Lord and the Holy Spirit began to change him. And so when he did that, where that picture is illustrated, he just thought, you know, it's kind of like when you discover something wonderful and great, you just want everybody to know about it. And again, in a sense, he just thought, this is what the Bible teaches. Certainly, everybody's going to come around and say, oh, my goodness, thank you, uh, Dr. Luther, for bringing these to our attention. Well, it didn't quite work out that way. They weren't real happy because keep in mind, at that time, the Roman church, the Roman Catholic church, was a much more political-type church. They, they were in controlling of of, of of nations. They had a standing army. I mean, it was a much much radically different type of situation. So when you hear me make any criticisms or differences about the Roman Catholic Church, make sure you hear my heart. I believe with all my heart there are born-again believers in the Catholic Church today. And I believe there's born-again people in the Baptist Church. And I believe there's born-again people in the Pentecostal Church. Okay? So don't get focused on anything. And it's something I'll do. It's interesting to see how the Roman Catholic Church through the years, especially since even the 60s, some of you, uh, how many of you were raised Roman Catholic? Okay. How many of you are familiar with what's called Vatican II? Heard that. That was some real changes that took place. And you know today, if you open up a Catholic uh, missal, not a missal like launch, M-I-S-S-A-L, a, a hymnal, do you know what hymn you will find in there? A Mighty Fortress is Our God, written by who? Martin Luther. Isn't that interesting? So certainly, uh, and I, anyway, so we'll talk more about that. But let's talk about the anchor, this first anchor this morning. And it's the anchor of Scripture. It's the anchor of Scripture. And so that's where we want to begin this morning. And let's pray before we open up. Father, help us today. Uh, keep things simple. Things, keep things clear. And, uh, Father, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. So we begin with the uh, first of the sola 
or Scripture alone and talking about the biblical authority. That was really the issue uh, that was a key issue is who is our authority? What is our authority? Is it the Word of God or is it church tradition? Now, let me just, and again, this is just, I'm not saying this in a, in a way that's uh, critical, it's just a state of fact. One of the major differences that even today between ourselves as a Protestant church and Roman Catholic church, uh, the Roman Catholic church, is how we understand authority. Uh, as Protestants, we would say that we, our authority is the Bible, is Scripture. Now, look, if you've been around any time, you know that's not always consistent <laughs> if you've been in church, right? But theologically, historically, we say the Bible is our authority, all right? In Roman Catholic theology, they certainly would acknowledge biblical authority, but this is where we, we, do, we differ, is they would say the Bible only has authority because the church gives it its authority. And so church tradition and church dogma or statements from the, the church, the pope, or what, through history, because uh, sometimes we'll say, well, wait a minute, where does... Uh, such and such uh, that maybe they practice uh, veneration of Mary or, or uh, purgatory. Where do those things come from? They're not in the Bible. To a Roman Catholic, that's not an issue because it, it, it isn't necessarily need to be in the Bible because the church authority has stated these things and, uh, as truths. Okay, Does that make sense? So there's two different sets of authority. As Protestants... Uh, we say, no, we, we believe that by Scripture alone, the Bible is our authority. So that's where we're, we're going this morning to talk about. The Grace Church Constitution, well, that will be on the screen here. We have a statement. We have a statement in our Articles of Faith. Can we put that on the screen there? Okay. And the first article in our Statement of Faith as a church in our Constitution and Bylaws reads that we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, fully inspired and without error in the original manuscripts, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that it has supreme authority in all matters of faith and conduct. Now, we can unpack all those phrases and spend about 10 weeks on it, and I'd have two of you here uh, left over. So we're not going to do that. But I just want you to see that as a church, we believe to the best of our understanding, that we want to practice what the Bible teaches. And so when we uh, spent time and presented even our bylaws, they weren't Scripture, but we tried to say, let's make these things consistent with what the Bible teaches. Let's don't go beyond what the Bible teaches, but let's don't go less than where Scripture is clear. So that's our intent as a church. We believe in the Bible. It's the Word of God. And so the reason this is important is because when when churches... Uh, and Christians that we can't agree, we can't come together uh, when a church is wrong or a priest is wrong or, heaven forbid, the pastor is wrong. How do we know? What's our standard? Is it just kind of like, you know, we have in some Bible studies where we, you know, say, well, what do you think? I don't know. What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And that's just kind of the way some churches have deviated in their understanding of doctrine. It's kind of, you know, like judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, that's not what we want to do at Grace Church. And I know that a myriad of churches, that's not what they want to do. We want to say, what does Scripture teach on this issue? What does the Bible say about marriage? 
What does the Bible say about, um, you know, uh, our, our life and our, our conduct and our ethics? And what does it say about Jesus? What does it say about the nature of God? We want to hear what the Bible says and to understand to the best of our understanding by God's Spirit and then go and practice what this book teaches. Now, I'm going to make lots of statements without clarifying them. Uh, but otherwise, we would just be here a really long time. The scripture uh, that, uh, I- that I think fits here for us to start with is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy, you're going to have to keep up with me. There we go. Perfect. 2 Timothy 3, 3 16 and 17. And I have uh, the NIV. I really like the way the NIV uh, uh, interprets this because... Most of your versions say all Scripture is inspired, and there's nothing wrong with that. But the word in the Greek, inspired, literally means God-breathed. And I like how the NIV just says it the way the Greek reads it, because that gives me a picture. When I think about this book and I think about Scripture, this is different than um, a, a, a Robert Ludlum novel. It's different than Shakespeare. It's different than a Grisham novel. It's different. Why? Because God did something to this book. And when I say this book, I'm talking about the writers, and we'll talk about that, is that he... And that's a picture that goes back to the very beginning in Genesis that when God made man out of the dust of the earth, what did he do with man that he didn't do with the chickens, dogs, cats? He breathed in him. He breathed his spirit. That word is pneuma in the Greek. Uh, The ruach in the Hebrew. He breathed, and it says that man, humankind, became a living being. Same concept, same word. So when the Bible says that all Scripture is God breathed, this book becomes what? It becomes a living book. Okay? It has power to change souls. It has power. Not the book, not the ink and the print, but yet that's the words that how God has communicated and how God has spoken. So, so the scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God, I'm a servant of God, are you a servant of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, okay? Paul said, all Scripture is God-breathed, and it has everything we need to be, um, God bless you over there, Uh, (laughs) it has everything we need to be equipped to serve the Lord. So let me just go through. I want to share five quick statements here. And again, some of these I'm just going to throw out there. I won't necessarily have time to elaborate on each one. Uh, And these are just, there's really just kind of a randomness that I put these together. Really, I had probably, I don't know, 12 or 13, but I realized that that was way too many. So I just kind of narrowed it down to five, and I'm going to go through them real quick here. But it's just to help us uh, flesh this out, round this out. We're talking about the authority of Scripture and the Bible, okay? Number one is that uh, the Bible's primary author can be trusted. Notice I said the primary author can be trusted. Look at 2 Peter 1.21, a very important scripture here. It says, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, 
but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's an important verse because sometimes people think that when you talk about that the Bible's inspired, that they, they equate it to what might be like a, some kind of mechanical dictation. They're, you know, psychics have this thing where they might would go under some kind of trance and start writing things, all right? That is not what we're talking about here, okay? It just means that God used people, personalities, ethnicities, ling- their language, all those things. And when Paul was writing... When Paul was writing a church to Galatia, I don't think he thought, oh, let me take my special pen out because I'm going to write the Bible now. Okay, and I'm going to fill it with my Holy Spirit ink. And he was writing a letter to the church at Galatia telling them to get their act together and quit messing around. They're jeopardizing the gospel. That's what he was doing. But yet what was working the author... The Spirit of God was working by the humanity of Paul, working through his words, working through his, uh, what he was putting down, and the Holy Spirit was breathing upon that process of him writing. You get what I'm saying there? So that's why it says, it wasn't that they just sat around and said, let's invent the Bible. Because you know what? If you and I were going to invent the Bible, there'd be a lot of stuff in there I would leave out. That little episode with David on the rooftop, with Bathsheba orchestrating the murder of her husband so he wouldn't get caught. You know what? Eh, just leave that out. The Bible puts it all in there, warts and all. And Paul and Peter got ticked off at each other. It's all right there. When he and Barnabas had a splitting, it's all right there. Now, if we're going to kind of, you know, we're going to kind of pull this little act together and pretend that we're going to create something, you tend to just want to put your best foot forward. Bible puts it all there. Remember when we were talking about, I don't know if it was the case for uh, faith or Christ, I remember what it was, where we were talking about even the resurrection, that if you were going to document the authenticity of Jesus being raised from the dead, you wouldn't have your primary eyewitnesses be women because in that culture, women had no credibility. And yet, who were the ones that were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection? Who were the ones that go on record? It was women. So if somebody's trying to plan and scheme or whatever, they've done a lousy job with the Bible. But you know what? That just confirms that this is God's book because all that goes against make, you know, what we would do if we were going to invent something. And so, again, it wasn't an act of human will for 2 Peter one twenty one, but men moved, guided by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And that means that the Bible reads beginning with a promise, with a covenant of the Old Testament to fulfillment in the New Testament. It's contains the greatest story ever told because it not only tells us about the meaning of life, but it tells us about the greatest Savior we could ever have, and that's Christ. So we can trust the primary author of the Bible. Secondly, again, these aren't in necessarily any particular order, but just thoughts to help us this morning. The Bible is authorized by Jesus. Now, if Jesus, and I believe the Bible teaches that Jesus is God of very God, and if he says that he trusts in something and he relies in something, 
then I think that we would have good reason to trust in that thing and rely in that as well. Would you agree with that? So if Jesus puts his trust in the Scripture, and I'll show you an example of that, then that should encourage me to put my trust in the Scripture. Give you an example uh, in Matthew 19, 4 through 5. Look at this on the screen. Now, just the context, the Pharisees and the religious folks around him, they were trying to trick Jesus into saying something that would get him in trouble with uh, not only the Romans, but the people. And so this was, in context, this was an answer from a trick question having to do with marriage, and it's a, it's a little complicated, and I think we talked about it a little bit a while back. But this is what I want you to pay attention to. Jesus' answer, much like he answered in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, remember when he was in the wilderness and Satan, the Bible says Satan was, was tempting him for 40 days and 40 nights, and, and each time he answered, what did he answer with? He answered with Scripture, the Word of God. Why? That had authority. Okay, that had authority. By the way, all those quotes in that were from the book of Deuteronomy. Okay? The fifth book in the five books of Moses we call the Torah or the Pentateuch. And some of the most maligned attacks by those who do not believe in biblical authority is always Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's always those books. And so, you know, Satan, why didn't he say, hey, you're not going to quote from me from that nonsense. You know, we all know that's historically unreliable. I mean, come on, you got to do something better than that, Jesus. Is that the best you can do, Jesus? Quote us from a book filled with errors? No. Jesus quoted the word of the Lord. It was authoritative. So here back to Matthew, he was asked a trick question, and what would he answer? And here's all I want you to say, uh, focus on. And so he answered and said, Have you not read? That's referring to something that is readable, correct? Something that's in print, right? Something accessible. Have you not read? He's talking to these religious leaders. That he who created them from the beginning, the context and the discussion was about marriage, and he quotes from Genesis, how from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall not leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Little side note, people say, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexual marriage. Yeah, he did right there. He affirmed biblical marriage, male and female. No confusion. No confusion. Right there, Jesus affirmed the biblical creation account. He put his seal of approval when he quoted as an authority, as a word of authority, when he said that God created them from the beginning. They weren't evolved from cosmic soup over billions of years. He created them. Now, do we understand everything in the processes of creation? No. But what I do know is that God made them from the beginning, male and female. That I do know. Do you know that? Can you read the Bible and say, okay, that's understandable. I get that. Do I understand whether it was, and again, you probably, I might get stoned. Do we understand whether it was a little, literal seven days or was it a long period of time? I think there's a lot of room there and we have to be careful. But still, Christians, you know, there's a lot of things that we just don't understand. But what I do understand is that God created male and female and joined them together for marriage. So what's the point? Jesus quoted that in an authoritative way. He didn't just give his opinion. He said, well, let me tell you what the Bible... Now, he didn't say that, but he says, let me tell you what the Word of God said. Everybody get that? Does that make sense? All right? Thank you for all three of you. Um, Number three is that the Bible is without error. The Bible is without error. 
so if ultimately God wrote the entire Bible through prophets and apostles, and God, according to Hebrews 6.18, cannot lie, and, it, and God is the source of all good, then it follows that the Bible is without error, is without falsehood, is without deceit. We can trust the reliability of Scripture. Psalm 119, 160, just as a way to comment on this, David said, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. See, that's the reason I could never become a Mormon, among many things. But I could never trust the Book of Mormon because the Book of Mormon talks about all these geographical places, supposedly in North America, that nobody has been ever able to find any geographical evidence of their existence. It's a make-believe fantasy. The Bible has been verified not by people that were trying to bolster their faith. The Bible, you can read eons of information, archaeological information about people who have no personal affinity to the Bible. They're just out trying to discover history and geography. We talked about Nineveh for a while when we were in the book of Jonah. Look that up. That has been historically, geographically verified, the city of Nineveh that really existed. It wasn't just some fantasy about some guy in a fish. Number four, the Bible is clear in its primary message. The Bible's message of salvation is plain enough so that everyone can understand it. That's the reason I don't buy into this nonsense that seems to come out of the woodwork every once in a while. The, the you know, the, was it the Bible numbers? And though the Bible is like some grand crossword puzzle, and you can find, you know, if you line up the words and numbers, and you can find Donald Trump in the book of the Leviticus and all this crazy, crazy Savior, you got money to blow, bring it to me. Don't buy that nonsense, okay? The Bible is not some mystery book that I have to starve myself. I have to somehow get with these people that have this secret knowledge. Let me tell you, one of the type of title books I always avoid is anything that has the word secret on the title about Jesus. The secret meaning of the scripture, the law, you know, those kinds of things. Listen, this is plain. And one of the things that was a hallmark of the Reformation is they taught the clear plainness that the message, does that mean we can understand everything of equalness? No, there's a lot of things in scripture that we are not going to understand till we're in heaven. But you know what? The main thing we need to know of how to know God, to know his son that he sent, that is plain. That path is clear. I mean, can we get any clearer than the most famous scripture of the NFL? Look at John 3.16. You thought I was going to say something about kneeling, didn't you, all right? Threw you off. Made sure you're awake. I mean, is it is as plain as plain as it can be? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The basic plot line of Scripture, God, out of his grace, good pleasure, made an everlasting covenant to save a people for himself. That theme runs from Genesis to Revelation. It's clear. 
and it even spills over in the maps. No, I'm kidding. I don't. I look like we're we're not at a funeral or nothing. All right. I mean, we're okay. Smile. Okay. We're the plot line is Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. Genesis three fifteen is the first proclamation of the gospel when God said, "I will bring forth a seed from the woman." That's a messianic promise right there square in the middle of the darkest hour of humankind when man rejected God by going his own way. And God says, I've already got a plan. This is the Lamb of God, the Bible says, was slain before the foundation of the earth. How do you get slain before the foundation of the earth, before Adam's, before he sinned? Why don't you get back with me on that and let me know that, okay? Hey, have you figured out by now there's just some things about God and his omniscience? Our little pea brains are not going to fathom or understand. But what are we saying here on the things that matter, on the clearness of the message? He's made it plain and he's made it clear. Luther and those who followed him declared, and this is important to make this connection, that salvation was not in a church. It wasn't in councils. It wasn't, he, you know, he wouldn't have used this because it wouldn't have existed. We would say it's not in a denomination, but it's in Jesus Christ. He is the anchor. We'll talk about Christ alone, sola Christus, and the Bible makes that plain, and the Bible makes that clear. And you know what? The Bible makes these truths clear to the simplest person, to the most greatest intellect. And I would even sometimes say that sometimes those with the greatest intellect have the most difficulty. Remember what Jesus told the Pharisees in John 5, 39? He says, you search the scriptures. These are the intellectual giants of his day that could recite uh, almost practically the entire Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament, the Torah, the prophets. He says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. You see... You are not saved by the Bible. Do you understand what I mean by that? You're saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ that is in the Bible. That's where God put it. That's where he gave us understanding. But just proclaiming your defense and your belief in the authority of Scripture alone, that does not make you a Christian. If you would challenge the Pharisees and the Sadducees, do you believe, we'll use our term, the Bible as they had it, They would have said, of course, let me recite to you the entire Torah. Do you know the entire Torah? No. You'd say, wow, pretty impressive. But Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. Eternal life is not in your belief in the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture. Your belief is in the Jesus, the gospel, that that proclaims. Does that sound heretical? It shouldn't be. We're just, we don't worship a Bible. We worship Jesus. And it's Jesus alone that our salvation is found in. Fifth, this kind of wraps some of the others. The Bible is enough. And I mean this in the context that we're talking about the Reformation period and what we learned from that. As I said, that our difference between a Roman Catholic understanding of authority is that they would hold that the Bible in and of itself is not enough, that you must bring in the traditions, the councils, the edicts of the church. We would say, well, 
And we, we studied the Apostles' Creed on Wednesday night and all those things. All those things are fine, but here's the deal. When those things deviate from the Bible, they go in the garbage. Do you hear what I mean? If, if a creed or, or, or a statement from church history deviates and contradicts something that Scripture clearly teaches, I don't want anything, I don't want any part of it. How do we judge that? We judge it because we believe in the Scriptures. We believe in the Word of God is our authority to judge all things. So that's what we mean by when we say the Bible is enough. The main character and center of the Bible's plot line is Jesus Christ. He is the fulfillment of the greatest story ever told. Look in Luke 24, 44. It says, now Jesus said to them, look at this. Jesus said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me, catch that, all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Law of Moses, prophets, Psalms, that would be what we would call the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. What is he doing? He's putting his, his, his identity in saying from Genesis to Malachi, creation, tabernacle, covenants, you name it. He, Jesus is saying, it was about me. That's the reason it's so crazy when he says to those Religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think you find eternal life, and yet they missed him in the scriptures. Can we do that? You betcha. We can sit and argue theology and debate eschaton. We can argue that all day long and go out and be mean as snakes and have the warmth and grace of God not ebbing and flowing out of our life. We got a bunch of head knowledge of, of, of stuff. And it might be important stuff. But if the life of Jesus is not flowing from our life and our heart, then really, what good is it? Huh? You need both. People say, well, just give me Jesus. Let's leave doctrine aside. That's the dumbest statement. Because your doctrine will determine what kind of Jesus you have. Do you want a Jehovah's Witness Jesus? you want a Mormon Jesus? You want a new age Jesus? What kind of Jesus do you want? Your doctrine, and where do we derive doctrine, is from Scripture. John 20, 31, I think is also should be on there. Jesus said, or John said, but these, John writing, kind of concluding his word there, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. Why did he write what we would say is the letter of John? It's because he is trying to say that in that is Jesus, and in him you have eternal life. Let me conclude by this. Um, we began talking about Martin Luther. And again, we don't worship Martin Luther. He was just a man, and uh, he said a lot of stupid things in his life. He did. He wasn't perfect. You ever say anything stupid? I have. This week. You might even think this morning, but I will skip that. <laughs> Four years later, after he had nailed those 95 statements on that door to begin a discussion 
He really wanted to reform the church he was a part of. Well, eventually, that led into some great trouble. He was removed from his teaching post and basically put on trial. Four years later, he's on trial defending his books that he wrote, things that he had written, all thinking he was trying to serve the church by returning it back in alignment to Scripture. They put him on trial and essentially said, Dr. Luther, if you do not, and, and in this trial in April of 1521, he's, they piled all his books and writings on this massive table, and they said, if you do not renounce these things, you'll be put to death. And this is what Luther, part of what Luther said. Look at this statement. He says, Unless I am convinced by testimonies of Scripture or by evident reason, for I believe that neither the Pope nor councils alone, since it is established that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, He said, I am the prisoner of the Scriptures. I love that. I am the prisoner of the Scriptures cited by me and my conscience. He's on trial for his life. My conscience has been taken captive by the Word of God. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. 